Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Live from Liverpool, the dark paranormal. Season two. Hello, and welcome to episode two of The Dark Paranormal. Thank you for all of the correspondence you sent in last week regarding the Amateurville Horror episode. What we will do in season two is with each alternate episode we will take a look at some of the best-known aspects of each paranormal experience and see how well they hold up to investigations and to scrutiny. If you're a fan of the dark paranormal, you can support the show by heading over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal, where, dependent on your tier level, you have access to everything from early episodes to scripts used on the show. Our first early episode will be released on Tuesday of next week, with episode 3 coming out a few dates earlier than released on the general feed. And I'd like to say a big thank you to our first two Patreons, Misty Miller and Nate Michaels, for your support to the show. Next week's episode will be a dramatised version of the key events surrounding the most infamous possession case in history. Namely, the true story behind the film The Exorcist. And that will be out seven days from today, a few days earlier for our Patreons at that tier. Now, with these stories, the very famous stories, such as Amityville, such as The Exorcist, the stories that we know almost inherently through our years of looking at paranormal events and paranormal stories, what we often don't do is take a contrary look and look at the people who have investigated these claims. But that's exactly what we're going to do in today's episode and in each alternate episode. Last week, we looked at the harrowing version of events as told by the Lutz family following their purchase of 112 Ocean Avenue, the house we, around the world, think about when we hear the word Amityville. This week, we uncover the facts about Amityville. We shake the narrative and see what stands up to scrutiny, in the hope, as people who want to find evidence in the paranormal, that we do just that, find some solid and tangible evidence that makes us question 
just what our existence is all about. One thing that cannot be denied is the house was a house of horror. Around 6.30pm on November the 13th, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr., the son of the house's former occupants, ran into his local bar in a panicked fashion, screaming for help and saying he had just found his parents shot dead. A small group of drinkers at the bar followed Ronald back to his home. Ronald led them to his parents' room, where they could see for themselves the murdered bodies of his father, Ronald Sr., and his mother, Louise DeFeo. One of the group called the police, stating that this poor boy had came home and found his parents shot to death. The police arrived and searched the property, and found four other bodies, those of his two brothers and two sisters, all lying face down, all killed with a single shot from a high-powered rifle. It's later revealed, in case you haven't guessed, that Ronald Jr., had taken a high-powered rifle and walked room to room, executing each of his family members as they lay in bed. DeFeo has given numerous contradicting statements regarding why he committed the atrocity in the years since. He was known locally as a hard drug user, and it's believed he was on some serious drugs on the night of the event. One of the more paranormal-sounding accounts that he mentions is how the rifle was handed to him by a hooded figure. Take from that what you will. However, there are a number of facts about the murders that do seem to have a supernatural edge to them. Take, for example, the gunshots. Now, Despite of how it appears in the films, 112 Ocean Avenue is not alone in a few acres of land. No. In fact, it's only a few feet away from its nearest neighbour. Forensics discovered that as the parents were shot twice, a total of at least eight shots had been fired by DeFeo in the middle of the night. Not in quick succession either, as he had to walk from room to room. In tests, the rifle, when fired, could be heard up to three blocks away. Ronald didn't use a silencer on the rifle. But not a single one of those eight shots were heard by the DeFeo's neighbour that night. They did, however, hear the DeFeo's dog barking, a considerably lower sound than a discharging rifle. So just what removed the sound from that evening's killings? To add further proof to this removal of sound idea, the police believe the family must have been drugged prior to being shot, as not one of them had moved from their face-down position in bed, when, given Ronald walked from room to room, at least one of them should have been alerted by the gunshots. 
But then the autopsy reports came back. And it had two shocking conclusions. Firstly, no drugs were found in any of the victims. And secondly, two of the victims, his mother and his sister Alison, were awake at the time of death. But both did not move. Now let's fast forward to now look at the new arrivals into 112 Ocean Avenue. The Lutz family and dig a little deeper into their claimed paranormal experiences. Firstly, it's important to note the Lutzes stood by their story right up to their deaths. Even through their eventual divorce, neither party disparaged the other's accounts. But one sceptical argument that keeps cropping up with the Lutzes is that of finances. Namely, that the house was a stretch too far. George has gone on record to acknowledge this to a point, claiming that they were initially looking to buy a house within the range of thirty to fifty thousand dollars. When they noticed a hundred and twelve, massively discounted due to the DeFeo murders, George believed they could manage the stretch if he ran his surveying business out of the property to save renting office space. Skeptics, however, say the stretch would prove too much, and that George would realise this quickly after moving in, deciding to concoct a story to make a quick book. However, this has always been denied by George, and records do show that although his business was in a dry spell, money was not too hard to come by. With the mortgage payments being paid in full up to the point of the property being returned to the bank. Additionally, as Amityville believers have pointed out, it would take almost supernatural foresight to know the success a simple haunted house story would have, let alone to gain the buy-in of your partner and your children in keeping the lie alive. However, the walls of the Lutz's story become a little shaky if we focus on one of the key players, namely Father Pecoraro. The priest's version of events has received condemnation from both researchers and the Catholic Church itself, mainly due to the inconsistency of his tale each time it was repeated. In a 1979 televised interview, Father Pecoraro regales a story from the J. Anson book, The Amateurville Horror, describing the room he blessed as unnaturally cold, and of course, featuring a demonic voice telling him to get out. Yet, In a court case surrounding the events, the Lutz's own attorney confirmed in an affidavit that the only communication between the Lutz's and the priest had been one phone call from Kathy telling him about what they experienced. Father Pecoraro also stated that the static on the line 
and his stigmatic blisters he was said to have experienced were also a lie. And he advised the judge he was unsure if the house had ever had any paranormal happenings. However, just after the court case, in an interview with Newsday, the priest once again stated that he had visited the home and he had been told to get out by an unseen being. In an unheard-of move, Father Pecoraro's diocese, the Diocese of Rockville Centre, spoke out on the claims in a letter to investigator Rick Osuna in 2002, stating that the diocese maintained that the story was a false report. So, what became of the Amityville priest, Father Pecoraro? Allegedly, he was transferred by the church to a distant, different diocese and was forbidden to practice certain rites of the Catholic Church. Other tangents of the story also fall down under scrutiny, such as the hoof prints in the snow which were witnessed by George and allegedly made by the demonic entity known as Jody. Records show that there was no snowfall in Long Island at the time of George's alleged sighting. Again, on the night George reports a storm blowing his front door off its hinges, weather reports show it was unseasonably mild for Long Island at that time, with a maximum wind of 10 miles per hour on that particular evening. No evidence could be brought to show a locksmith was called to repair the front door, with the only evidence of damage being that of a photograph of damage to a screen door. Screen doors, of course, are notoriously light and flimsy, not near the £250 in weight mentioned by George. And now we introduce some new characters into the story. William Weber, an attorney who initially worked with the Lutzes, but came out later to state that the entire story was fabricated and created by he and the Lutzes one evening over several bottles of wine. George and Cathy sued Weber and his associates for an invasion of privacy and misappropriation of their names for trade purposes. Weber countersued, stating that the Lutzes had perpetrated a fraud and breached their contract. The judge threw out the Lutzes' case, but allowed the counter case to continue, claiming, It appears to me a large extent of the story is a work of fiction, relying in a large part on the suggestions of Mr. Weber. Now, interestingly, Weber received an undisclosed out-of-court settlement as a resolution. Even with the story now being branded a hoax, in a court of law no less, the Lutzes still stuck 
with their claims and even agreed to be the subject of a lie detector test. Chris Gugas was a polygraph expert with his polygraph results being used in court cases of some of the Hollywood elite. He interviewed George and Kathy separately. He read out each paranormal event in turn, from alleged poltergeist activity to Kathy's levitation. Both George and Kathy passed with flying colours. They, as far as they were aware, were 100% telling the truth. People who have lived at 112 Ocean Drive in the years since the Lutzers left have also been victim to awful experiences, but only by human beings. Tourists and fans of the book keen to get pictures of the famous house with its windows shaped like evil eyes. But none of the tenants have reported any paranormal activity. But is there a reason for that too? One of the largely forgotten parts of the book, The Amitable Horror, is the ending In the final pages, we learn that far from fleeing the evil of the house, the demonic presence follows the family to their new abode. In the book, this is left almost as a cliffhanger. But what if we look at why that may be? Firstly, if we look at the financial gain that could arguably have been created by a sequel to the Lutz's events, it would stand to reason that the first book would end on some sort of cliffhanger. One could very easily argue that if the paranormal activity continued in the new home, why it would be deemed necessary just to end the recording of it there and then. From a clear sceptical standpoint, If we're led to believe the intention of the Amityville horror book is to bring to light a series of paranormal events that the regular layman could hope to never experience in their life, then surely that research should have continued into the new home of the Lutzers. Surely that story should have continued in book one. If, as they claim, the initial book was solely to tell the truth about what happened and about the paranormal experiences encountered, the only possible reason to leave Book One on a cliffhanger would be for financial gain. To eventually bring out a follow-up book, if the first book proved financially successful. That would be the sceptical view of why the book was ended on a cliffhanger of why the paranormal activity did not stop when they left the home. A counter-argument to that would be that the Lutzes and Jay Anson, the author of the book, did not bring out a follow-up book. Now, maybe let's look not necessarily as why the book was left as a cliffhanger. Let's instead take a look at why 
allegedly, the paranormal activity followed the Lutzes from 112 Ocean Avenue to their new home. Could it be it was never the Amityville house, but in fact, the Lutz family themselves? In 2013, George and Kathy's son, Danny, was featured in a new documentary, My Amityville Hell, where he gave new insight to an old story. Danny confirms lots of the paranormal activity was real, and goes further, even describing new information. Like recalling a time he was dragged up the stairs by unseen hands. But more interesting than any of those accounts is the information he provides about his stepfather, George Lutz, that adds a new, dark arc to this legendary tale. Danny states in the documentary that the one thing that was never mentioned in any version of the story was one simple fact. George was a practicing occultist. Danny recalled a bookshelf covered with dark tomes on Satanism, mind control, telepathy and black magic. Danny states he remembers spying on George in a garage prior to even moving to Amityville. As he hid, he watched George smile with delight as he managed to move a wrench across a table using telekinesis. Far from the activity in the Ocean Avenue home being some sort of hangover from the DeFeo murders, Danny firmly believes the evil in the house was in fact unwittingly released by George himself following an occult ritual gone wrong. Danny is quoted as saying, George's beliefs and practices triggered what was going on in the house. It was a magic trick gone bad that you couldn't turn off. Interestingly, it's been discovered that the same claims were made years earlier by Danny's brother, Christopher. Yet, at the time, they weren't given much credence, as George insisted Christopher was just lashing out following a disagreement over money. Danny, however, advised the documentary makers he did not want to receive any financial gain from the documentary. He just wanted the truth to be heard. So, just what is the truth behind the most famous haunted house in the world? We may never truly know. What we do know without question is something took place all those years ago in Long Island, New York. We know that for every sceptic that will rightly point to the inconsistencies of the Lutz's story 
No explanation can be given for the lack of sound during the original murder spree. No reasoning can be given for every member of the DeFeo family remaining still in their beds despite what should have been thunderous gunshots reverberating around the house. As we mentioned earlier, Ronald DeFeo has given numerous varying reasons why he committed these murders. One of which was given during an attempted insanity plea was that demonic voices commanded him to kill his entire family. Infamous paranormal researcher Lorraine Warren believes it was these demons which worked to remove the sound from the event itself. But perhaps these theories should be taken with a grain of salt. However, on a personal note, in the mid-90s, I recall watching a UK documentary on police officers who kill. One such story featured a policeman who, one mild summer night, took a shotgun and slowly walked room to room, killing his wife and three kids. He then wrote out a suicide note, saying the voices made him do it, before hanging himself from the landing. When investigating the tragedy, the police were shocked to find two things. Firstly, although this was a terraced house, with neighbours either side of the wall. The neighbours didn't hear a thing. On the night, four exceptionally loud shotgun blasts rang out. And secondly, the initial police report stated that the people in the house must have been drugged as they didn't move from their beds during the massacre. I think you can guess what I'm going to say when the toxicology reports came back. The toxicology reports found no traces of any drugs in any of the four bodies, despite not one of them moving from their face-down position throughout what should have been a thunderous massacre. Eerie as still, the medical report also shown that two of the people, the mother and daughter, were still awake as the massacre took place, but did not move from their face-down laying position. The detective in charge of the case said he will be forever haunted by one question. Why the neighbours didn't hear a single sound from the house? other than the family's pet dog barking around four in the morning. I hope we've given you food for thought regarding the amateurable horror and the alleged paranormal experiences that sit behind arguably the most famous haunted house in the world. I think we've covered enough angles here for you to take what you want from this episode. You could 
arguably rightly so, write the whole thing off as a hoax, if we look towards the sceptical end of the spectrum. The evidence is there for a hoax. If you want to look the other side, down the side that we'll call the dark paranormal side, is there some deity that has the ability to transcend continents, families, houses, and make rational people commit the most heinous of crimes? Or is Amityville just a very famous example of stone tape theory? The idea that little bits of iron that reside in the brickwork of many buildings can absorb acts of horror, acts of passion, acts of strong emotion, and spit all of their energy back out when the settings are just right. Or was George Lutz a master occultist who got in a little too deep than he was comfortable with? As with many tales of the paranormal, for me, Amateurville is like a choose-your-own-adventure mystery. Dependent on where you sit in the paranormal scale, the events are either exceptionally convincing or complete and utter fraud. One thing that can't be denied is Amateurville's place in the hierarchy of the world of the paranormal. Thank you once more for listening to The Dark Paranormal. As I mentioned at the start of the show, if you'd like to support the show and ensure future series, please go to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. Again, I will say in series three, we will be returning to dark paranormal listener stories. If you believe you've had an encounter or experience that should be shared with our community, please send an email to the dark paranormal at hotmail.com. Next week, we will take a look at the case of Robbie Mannheim, the young boy behind the true story of The Exorcist. So I'll see you next week on The Dark Paranormal. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.